Hey, I'm Emery Parker, Interactive Editor with The Post and Courier, here each week to discuss the forces shaping the Palmetto State and provide the context that gives it meaning. This is Understand South Carolina. I'm here with my co-hosts, Brooks Brunson and Kelly Poe from The Post and Courier's web team. We're here with longtime Post and Courier reporter Adam Parker to talk about who wins and loses when the Charleston Peninsula gets more and more valuable. In 1980, it was roughly two-thirds black, but by 2010, it was roughly two-thirds white. In 1940, roughly 70,000 people lived on the peninsula, but by 2010, only 32,000 people lived on the peninsula. Adam, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So what can you tell us about who lives on the peninsula today? Well, the peninsula has been changing really dramatically in recent years. In just the last couple of decades, we've seen really enormous change. And um, it's the real estate prices have gone way, way up. Most recently, um, David Slade and I, a colleague of mine, David Slade, uh, worked on a story about the Hampton Park area, sort of north of the, Charl- of, of the Crosstown. We were focused there. And we discovered a lot of dramatic change just in that neighborhood alone. And this is on the heels of change we've all seen along the Martin Luther King historic corridor, Cannon Street and Spring Street. It's not very simplistic. You know, there there are a lot of factors involved here, Um, not the least of which is a vastly growing College of Charleston, which over the course of the last 20 years has exploded in student population. So you have a lot of students living on the peninsula now. You have real estate prices going way up, which is ostensibly pushing some people out. And uh, you have a lot of desirable places, real estate, and you have a lot of speculation as well. So you have real estate developers and buyers and investors looking around for opportunities to buy property, fix it up, or knock it down and build anew, as the case may be. And we're seeing a lot of this happen now in the upper parts of the peninsula, which is sort of the last bastion of affordable, relatively affordable housing stock. Typical family home in the Hampton Park area, maybe 15 years ago, was under two hundred thousand dollars. You know, you what? could get something for about one hundred seventy-five grand. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, and now it's around three hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. So Kelly and I both live in that neighborhood that you're talking about, the um, Hampton Park area. Yes, and um, Emory is pretty close by. He's Great right. neighborhood. It's gorgeous. It's fantastic. Um. So the thing is, since I've moved there, so. My first place in the area was in 2017. <laughs> For context, I've lived in literally all the gentrified neighborhoods in downtown Charleston, right? But I feel, and you can just correct me if I'm wrong here, but it feels like that one is the the most white, I guess I would say. Yeah, it's it's always been relatively diverse, actually. The Hampton Park area, even before white flight in the 60s and 70s, and there was a huge flight from the peninsula, but even, even back then, it was relatively diverse. There were many Greeks living up in that neighborhood, many Jews living up in that neighborhood. In fact, I think there was an early synagogue somewhere up there. And um, many African-Americans and white families as well. It's always been this very interesting mix, which I think gives it its character even today. And even today, we see a lot of mix. It's still a relatively diverse part of town. What happened after white flight was black people actually became the majority in general on the peninsula and certainly in that area as well. 
And then as the downtown area became, the peninsula became more and more appealing, uh, white people started moving back in starting in the 80s and 90s really and then really ramping up after that. I think there might be some sort of link I'm missing here. So how does white flight, how did that make white people leave the peninsula? Mostly it was the expansion of the city. The city had launched an effort, a concerted effort to grow its tax base and to expand into the West Ashley and eventually into James Island and now Johns Island and even Daniel Island is part of the city of Charleston. It's really expanded. The city of Charleston used to be the peninsula. That was it. And as these suburbs became reasonable alternatives in the 70s and 80s, a lot of white people who could afford to do so moved out. And they had yards and more room, and it was just, you know, it wasn't exactly the same kind of white flight that some of the urban centers up north experienced. You know, in Detroit in 1967, there were riots, which scared the hell out of all these black, uh, white right. people. That It didn't happen in quite that manner here in Charleston. There were other dynamics at play too. But there's no question that a large number of white people did leave the peninsula. And that changed the dynamic. The population, you know, we think of the peninsula so crowded today. All the traffic. Yeah. And all the people and the tourists and the students and the bikes and the skateboards and it's nowhere to park. But in reality, as Emery pointed out, the population is way down, down by half. It's only about 30, under 35,000. But there weren't many more buildings, homes, houses, right? Where did did everybody live? (laughs) That's interesting too. Let's go way, way back to the beginning, shall we? So, you know, way, way back – the city was well below Calhoun. It was really below Market Street. You know, there was south of Broad, which was the big residential area where the planters had their houses and, and all of this. And then there was the commercial area along Broad Street and, uh, and up a little and on the east side along the wharf, uh, along the harbor. Back then, uh, the population density per capita was much higher but African-Americans lived throughout the peninsula, the lower part of the peninsula where the population was densest. And they lived in these um, little houses behind the big house. And um, they lived and worked, and, and it was just a much denser populated era in a way. And that persisted really into the 1900s. You had people living all across, black people living throughout the peninsula right into the, 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 the 1900s when Jim Crow really became very, very oppressive and very, very difficult. And you had interesting mixes in Charleston. You know, Charleston is such a fascinating place. You had black people on the street corners selling their wares and selling fruits and vegetables and white people buying from them. This is during Jim Crow, you know, during uh, the Porgy and Bess era when the city was um, complicated but diverse when Jim Crow was still in force and when black people and white people managed – some poor black people and white people somehow managed to eke out a living on the peninsula. They all lived on the – I mean the peninsula was a much more diverse place economically than it is today, which is fascinating when you go back and you look at this history. Ansonboro, the Ansonboro neighborhood is very nice, you know, fancy. Yeah, it's one of the nicest neighborhoods. It's one of the nicest neighborhoods. It's on, on, on the east side of the peninsula – but kind of wedged between East Bay and Meeting Street. It's very beautiful. Well, that area used to house many, many African-Americans as well. 
uh, there was the um, the uh, Ansonboro Homes, uh, which was a low-income housing project there. Where the Gilliard sits today, well, of course, it used to be the Gilliard Municipal Auditorium, which was built in 1968. And to build that auditorium, they had to clear the land. And what did they do? They cleared that land of homes, residences, belonging to African Americans. So yeah, the black people got displaced, but the white people were fine. The white people got their municipal auditorium. Right. Well, and so did, so did black people, to be fair, uh, those who chose to use it and could afford to use it and so on. But uh, the Ansonboro neighborhood is an interesting example of how gentrification, which, you know, the word itself, gentrification, is a little tricky because there's something about it, to my ear anyway, that sounds a little negative. Like we, th- we think, mm, that's a bad thing. So the question really, to my mind, isn't so much should we slow gentrification or stop gentrification or react in some way against this process, or do we figure out a way so that gentrification happens in a more inclusive manner so that people aren't excluded and forced out and forced to cope? And there are lots of ways to do that, of course. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of one of the questions I had, you know, because I have lived in Elliottboro, the east side, and now I'm in um, Wagner Terrace. You know, as a white person that is kind of benefiting from gentrification in a lot of ways. Also hurts me in some way because rent continues to go up. But, but, you know, I'm taking advantage of these places kind of becoming renovated and having a nice place to live, right? Absolutely. What is the right way for her, I don't know, to to not act entitled or not to, to be respectful of these people, you know, whose neighborhoods, families have been here for hundreds of years? It's, it's a problem. You know, it's it's an issue. How do you how does a newcomer move in? And um, well, first of all, these things happen, and I don't know that we should apologize for them. I mean, you need a place to live, and you should ideally have a place to live that's not too far away from the place you work, and ideally that allows you to do other things as well. You know, meet friends at a nearby bar and and uh, ride your bike around or whatever. These things are right and proper. The problem is that too many people don't have access to these same things because mm-hmm. the rent is so high and so forth. So I don't know that we should necessarily feel too guilty um, about going about our lives in the best manner we can do. But I do think we should um, reach out to our neighbors and understand their experiences too and just try to understand better the context in which we find ourselves and to recognize our privilege when we have it and to recognize the absence of privilege among our neighbors who don't have it. And then to just be conscious of this, I think that's the main first step, is to be aware of these things, because then we can make decisions that improve our lives and the lives of our neighbors. Then we can vote for the right people, and we can influence policy in whatever ways that we that are appropriate. Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Brooks. Um, and I, I think it's probably relevant for our listeners to know that um, your three co-hosts are uh, three white millennials who rent on in the Hampton yep. Park neighborhood. Yep. <laughs> um, that is relevant information. I do love that neighborhood. It is. Well, I think I'm, I'm technically North Central, but yeah. Right. Ab- upper Peninsula. Uh, yeah. And um, I think that throwing it back a little bit to what you said about um, how it was a much more concentrated population. I think it's probably relevant to, you know, we're all in our late 
20s, early 30s, mm-hmm. and none of us have children. And exactly. back mm-hmm. in those days, a lot of people had right. not only children much younger, but a lot more children. That's right. And sometimes multiple, multiple families were living together in shared spaces as well. So that does definitely account for some of the difference in the population numbers. Good point. Yeah, and I also wonder too, I mean, especially when you're talking about the like the southern tip down there, I mean, a lot of those houses I feel like are also kind of empty. I mean, I'm aware of some people that that's like their second or third home, you know, and I think that back right. in the day they weren't necessarily like a vacation destination or they're rented out for Airbnb, you know. If they can do that. And, and they're, and they're not they local now, people. But, they're often people right. who bought second homes. Very wealthy people from wherever, New York or someplace. So the whole dynamic has changed. After the Civil War, you know, all the the planters who had their summer homes there because it was too hot to be on the plantation, they'd come downtown, they'd hang out downtown, there'd be cultural activities and so on and so forth. And a lot of that property was built by their slaves. Those folks, um, after the war, after the Civil War, became sort of land rich but cash poor, as the saying goes. And so they had these beautiful homes but they didn't necessarily always have the cash to maintain them. And you saw a slow, not so slow, decline in the Charleston area, economic decline and physical decline. And this was very interesting because in the 20s and 30s, the 1920s and 30s, there was a Charleston renaissance, the first of our two big renaissances, when the area was rediscovered a bit, when artists always artists on the leading edge of these things, always the artists, thank you artists, began to convey some of the beauty of the area and some of the beauty in the dilapidation as well of the city. And then you had a slow buildup, you know, starting in the, after the war, after World War II, you had a slow buildup, some activity on King Street. And then when Mayor Joe Riley took office in 1975, we started to see the second big renaissance. Uh, begin with the development of King Street and other improvements throughout the peninsula, especially he was focused on the peninsula and expanding the tax base into the suburbs as well. You know, Riley was part of the, the, um, uh, these young Turks, this, this new South Democratic group of politicians that took over the state house and started to be very influential. And then soon after Riley became mayor, of the city, but he brought these ideas of renovation and revitalization with him. And, uh, and so you saw this amazing development at which many people say has, has saved. I mean, he brought Spoleto Festival in 1977, two years after he became mayor, which was really the spark. If, if, if a single spark might be identified, it would be this. Okay, so that's the 70s, right? And then and the story that you and David Slade wrote in 2014, you guys kind of reference, I mean, not directly, but indirectly, like there's another spark that kind of happens in the 2000s. What was that? Like, So my parents that went to College of Charleston, they would say like, and that would have been the 80s, they say like, um, when we were there, you didn't go north of Calhoun Street, right? And then even when I started at College of Charleston in 2010, you kind of Spring Street was, you don't go north of Spring Street. By the time I'm out of 2014, Spring Street's like one of the most sought out areas. And right. you definitely did go oh, north yeah. of Spring Street, you know. And that was in a four-year span. I saw rent double in that area, right? Yeah. Well, I think students, students and artists, you know, students and artists and these 
people who have these sort of middle-class values but no money <laughs> are the ones who end That's such up such a good way to put it <laughs> on, on the front lines of change, you know? So they because they have no money, they have to rent places that are affordable. And those places are often in neighborhoods that are not so wonderfully gentrified and beautiful and perfect with all these and not always even entirely safe. And so they they trigger change or help to trigger change. But there were many other factors, right? Because we're talking about the first part of the 2000s. The first part of the 2000s, there was a huge real estate bubble, a huge boom, a lot of speculation, a lot of investment. And uh, so the students were fueling some of this. You had outside investors fueling some of this. You had the natural evolution of the Charleston Peninsula, the improvements that were being made under Mayor Riley, that was fueling a lot of interest in the peninsula and influencing real estate values and rents and all these things. And so you had more and more interest in the peninsula and more and more pressure, consequently, on old-timers who were trying to hang on. Now, there's, there's a, a misunderstanding about taxes, property taxes. People think that as real estate values go up, so do your property taxes. That's not exactly true because if, if you live in a home, let's say, as a single-family home, your property taxes were set and established whenever you moved in, and they don't really change until there's turnover. So families that can hang on are not seeing their, ta- their property taxes go up per se, even though the property taxes in general are going up all around them. Their, the value of their home goes up, and this creates an interesting dynamic. Should they sell now that they can get so much money for this property they've been living in, their families had for a couple of generations or whatever it is, now they can get they can make a lot of money. Should they sell? If they do sell, then the people who move into that property, now they pay the new higher tax rate. Oh, I never realized That's that. That's how that works. Huh. And so now that the tax rates and, – and then this happens little by little incrementally as each home is turned over – the ta- that's how the tax rate goes so up. So if a house has been sold more times, then that house is going to have a higher tax, tax rate. rate. Yeah, huh. exactly. But the families that have stuck with it for a long time are still paying a lower tax rate. It's sort of like rent control in New York mm-hmm. City or something. I do I do think one thing I wanted to mention before we move on from students is I think it's worth mentioning at College of Charleston, the student body population is kind of bifurcated in a way that maybe is more so than some of the other in-state public schools. Like, basically, they max out the amount. Like, they're, they're ma- they are limited by law in how many students can be out-of-state. Out-of-state tuition is, like, three times what the in-state tuition is. Right. So if you're an out-of-state student going to College of Charleston, you're probably rich or coming from, unless you're on a scholarship or something. So I think that... Like there are a lot of very wealthy students at College of Charleston, in, in addition to ones yeah. that are that are struggling to to find you know basic places to live. But like, there's a reason why all these new developments are quote unquote luxury student apartments because yes. that's you know like when I was a student, I didn't care if I had granite countertops, but you know that's that's a thing that there there's an audience of students out there looking Apparently for that. So. Yeah, yeah, they need their granite. Yep. I'm relatively new to Charleston. Um, I've only lived here for about a year and a half. And I have lived a lot of other places all over the South. And while it does feel to me that there is something different happening here, 
there is some version of this happening everywhere. Yes, definitely. Um, same story in Birmingham, Alabama, rising rents downtown because Absolutely. more people are moving in town. Same story in Greensboro, North Carolina. Definitely the same story in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I grew up. Is there something special, different happening yes. here? Yes, Charleston is Charleston. Oh my God, it's like number one on all the magazine lists for you know best tourist destination, and 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 it is a. I mean, it is a extraordinary city, don't you think? Yes. I mean, it's especially beautiful. It's got this amazing history. It's fascinating. It's it's difficult. It's not always a, a comfortable thing to think about, but it's always fascinating. And uh, the shape of it, the geography, right on the water. I mean, there's a lot going for Charleston that, uh, with all due respect to Greensboro, which I, I visited and love. <laughs> I mean, it's a fascinating city with a really cool vibe and a great dynamic and and all of that, but it, you know, Charleston is this unusual place because of its physical characteristics, because of its history, because of its arts and culture. You know, it's it's an arts town, and and it's been an arts town since colonial times. And uh, and the Dock Street Theater hosted like North America's first ever opera. So there's this fascinating, and now it's a food town, a serious competitive food town. Because of all of this, which isn't to say that Birmingham, I mean, Birmingham has some amazing restaurants, right? There's a whole food thing happening there. So it is interesting. I think the South in general is changing. We're getting a lot of uh, people from elsewhere, but especially from other places in the South, by the way. The majority of people moving into the into the Charleston area, I think, are from other They're places from in the Carolina. South. Yeah, right. they're from. This is like something. Exactly. I've yeah. They're not from Ohio. <laughs> None all of them those, are from Ohio. All those people complaining about Ohio, you're wrong. Those are not the. That's not the majority of the people infiltrating our city. I think part of it is that in general we see this moving away from rural areas. People are moving away from. Yes. And they're moving into cities all over, and and this is a story you see in every city. But it does feel like. It, I don't see the end here. No. I don't see when it's going to stop. It's a trend. It's an ongoing trend. And, you know, it's the urbanization of the world, really. Uh, has, there are many, many, many factors. It would be impossible, really, to delve into that particular issue. One of the things that I thought your your story with David Slade really captured is this speed, the just stunning speed with yeah. which things are changing. And so this was a 2014 story. I think around that time was probably when I started at the paper, um, and I was living on the east side, which is a neighborhood you mentioned in the story, as as kind of at the time up and coming. You actually interviewed my roommate. That's right. Uh, yeah. On the east side. Um, <laughs> so since then, I got priced out of the east side. Yeah. <laughs> That's why yeah. I now live on the in, in North Central. Yeah. So, I, like, I'm curious what since then what what have you been seeing? Because like we've seen things like home share, like Airbnb, start popping up. Is that like what what's changed since? Since the last time uh, we talked about I this, I think what's changed is is the economics of it is just uh, it's just ramped up. It's become first of all, there's been a lot of new construction, a lot more being built, and along this east side corridor in particular, and from the east side up, up Morrison Drive, and up the east side of the peninsula into the neck area, well into the neck area, we're seeing interesting developments. The zoning there is a little different. You're able to build higher. So you can build mixed use more easily. You can get approved for a lot of things a little more easily than in the historic parts of town where the controls and higher density, are higher density, and everything. And I really feel like that's like kind of the last neighborhood that's like still like yeah. largely black, honestly. 
in, right. in and, the peninsula. And there's and a lot of concern about that. And, yeah. and, and it's interesting because, again, there, there's an opportunity here. And the question is, will the city's policymakers choose to embrace this opportunity or not? Or will the developers just sort of be permitted to build, 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 mm-hmm. build, which is what they're doing at the moment. They're building these somewhat nondescript, not particularly attractive, in my view, large apartment buildings and uh, not very much affordable housing. It's amazing when you come over the bridge from Mount Pleasant, you see all the cranes and there's a series of, I think, four construction projects. So one many after cranes. The other. I know exactly what you're talking about. And this about. is right along the east side. Yep. And up. So all of this is putting pressure on real estate values, upward pressure on real estate values. As these neighborhoods, quote, improve, unquote, all of a sudden a dilapidated house on the east side, because many of those homes are in disrepair, becomes ridiculously expensive. And the only people who can afford to buy them are speculators or investors who are either going to totally renovate the thing or knock it down and build something new in its place and then – all of a sudden the cost is doubled or whatever. And so who can afford to live there? Not students, not young professionals. Where can they afford to live? Um, some These new apartment buildings too aren't very affordable, quote unquote, right? Nope. So we're having this real dilemma. In the meantime, there's this project to create something called the low line. Have you heard about that? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So along these old railway tracks that aren't being used anymore – the right-of-way has been secured by the city, and there's a nonprofit organization that's hoping to build this park, basically, this linear park. But the park is designed not only to create green space and offer alternatives to some of the traffic we're seeing on the peninsula, and it's, it's also designed to connect the, the neck area, Mount Pleasant Street, basically, all the way down to basically where the Post and Courier building is on the upper part of King Street. And not just to connect that corridor, but to sort of stitch together the the wound that was caused when I-26 and the Crosstown were built. To build the Crosstown, they had to carve this gash right through this residential neighborhood that was largely African-American, it's worth pointing out. Today, if you go up King Street, you'll see a lot of these dead-end streets or Meeting Street on the other side. If you look in toward I-26, which is elevated, you'll see these dead-end streets. Yeah, I used to live in one of those. Now, My window well, looked once up upon at the a, ramp. Yeah, and once upon a time, there was just a cohesive neighborhood. The Crosstown itself was built through a historically black neighborhood, which mm-hmm. cut it in two and accelerated its decline. And so you you have an opportunity with the low line to reconnect um, all this stuff. Reconnect to, Charleston. Reconnect Charleston to huh. break through those dead ends, to create green spaces, and potentially to engage the neighborhood. Sorry to cut you off, Adam, but we do, we have to keep our head. Time. Yeah, yeah. we're about, time is about up, but you've made some really, you know, I hadn't really thought of the low line that way at all. You know, it's kind of this bridge that. I hadn't thought of I-26 as a gaping wound. Yeah. But now <laughs> I will never stop. Yeah, and the crosstown, gaping wound. Well, Adam, we're, uh, Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This Where is fun. Where can people follow you online? Online, uh, well, they can f- follow the stories that are posted to postandcourier.com. And my Twitter handle and Facebook is at A. Parker Writer. And I understand you have a new book you might want to plug? 
Sure. Thank you for that opportunity. Oh, my gosh, <laughs> yes. It's a book called Outside Agitator, and it's a biography of a, a South Carolina civil rights figure, Cleveland Sellers Jr., who was very active in the 1960s and led a fascinating life. He got caught up in the Orangeburg Massacre. This is subject for another podcast. Uh, where can people find that? Anywhere. Go online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Blue Bicycle Books locally in Charleston sells copies. Uh, the publisher is Hub City Press. And you can buy directly from Hub City as well. Um, Brooks, do you feel like you better understand South Carolina? Absolutely. Um, there were a lot of details about the history of the peninsula that I was very unaware of until um, speaking with Adam. You know, sometimes I try to pretend like, I know everything about Charleston. This is my home, but never really gotten a breakdown of how the peninsula evolved and some of the background that kind of explains why we see a lot of the patterns we see today. Emery, do you feel like you better understand South Carolina? Yeah, I do. I mean, selfishly, the other day, I, I was just trying to get to the new Publix on the west side of town, and it occurred to me, like, how disconnected this city actually is from a traffic perspective. It's surprisingly difficult to get over there without using the crosstown. Yeah. Um, so I feel like now I, I kind of have a sense of where that came from. I'm looking forward to maybe the city being pieced back together a little bit. I hope so. Kelly, do you understand South Carolina better? Yeah, I do. Um, it is so wild for me to imagine se- double the population living here. Yeah. Like, just what that would be like Still on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> well, you know, I, I should just add in that on any given day, we have like 20,000 tourists roaming the streets. Mm. Mm. True. True. That's, a, that's a good point. There's 7 yeah. million visitors a that was year. probably not true. So it feels like a lot of people because we have a lot of visitors on any given day also. Yeah. Um, also, I'm looking for a place to live soon, and this yeah. made me feel more anxious about it. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Right. Well, are you good with your hands? No. You could renovate a place. <laughs> I have a friend that did that, actually. Oh, where would I even buy the land, You could though? live on a boat. <laughs> yeah. Right, good. Yeah. Yeah. That's my new plan. There we go. Moored right. in the Ashley River. Yep. All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com, or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later. See y'all later.